doctor came out and told us that we could not save your son, that your son had passed away and he, and he died of a heroin overdose. And we, a total shock, we, we had no idea that our son had gotten involved with heroin. Almost 20 teens and young people dead. Four in one summer alone. High school kids turning up in the hospital emergency rooms, overdosing on heroin every week. We're taking you back to 1999, to the town that the news media dubbed Heroin City, USA. Was it Detroit? L.A.? Over the past two years, our community has been gripped with a crisis like none that we've known before, and that's been the heroin drug crisis. That's John Longstreet, mayor of Plano, Texas, in 1999. Plano was gripped in a heroin crisis, which ultimately took the lives of 19 young people between 1995 and 1999. Today, we bring you the story of the Plano heroin shutdown, a story that many people living in Plano today don't know and some would like to forget. Welcome to Plano Podcast, tales of curiosity and character. I'm Tammy Hooker. We're glad you found our little on-air hangout with stories from inside Plano and just outside of what you might expect. For this episode, we track down the people who tackled the Plano heroin crisis in the late 1990s. While all are quick to say that heroin has never been entirely eliminated from Plano, they did shut down a heroin operation that killed young people and ruined many lives in our community. Many of these city leaders still get calls to this day, 20 years later from their counterparts in other communities, asking how they did it, how Plano tackled its drug outbreak. Plano's approach became a model for fighting drugs that's still invoked today. We're proud to open our mic and to let them share their story. We got labeled with Heroin City USA and Heroin Capital and, and all these things. And so, um, you know, to come out and say, my name is Plano, I'm an addict, that's a tough, that's a tough sale. As long as people were going to use heroin, this was life and death. The incredible story begins in the mid-1990s when Dr. Larry Alexander, a physician in the emergency room at Plano Medical Center, began to notice an unusual number of heroin overdoses. I'm Bruce Glasscock. I am currently the uh, city manager of the city of Plano. Uh, I served as the police chief from 1990 to 2011, and it was during that period of time that we dealt with the uh, uh, large number of heroin deaths that took place in the community. Dr. Alexander in the ER was probably the first one who, who tried to bring it to everybody's attention because he was seeing it. Cars would pull up to the ER and dump somebody out and then scramble away, and here you would have a young person 
you know, laying on the pavement that was overdosing. So he really saw it. I, I think from a, from a police department perspective, the number, you know, Sergeant Paul and, and the detectives that were working in that were starting to say, you know, we're starting to see uh, a large number of overdoses and we're starting to see these overdoses are resulting in deaths. And so when we started going back and looking at the number of deaths we had, bells and whistles started going off. This is not your usual run. And we're starting to have a, a serious problem in this community. My name is Greg Russian. I'm the Plano Police Chief. During the heroin crisis, I was a assistant chief. Uh, we recognized very quickly that it wasn't traditional heroin that you'd think of when you think of someone shooting heroin, uh, it being called heroin, you're, you're cognizant of what you're taking. This was a drug that was very carefully marketed by people from Mexico that had moved here to market this drug. What they did was they, they took uh, black tar heroin, which is very high purity, and they would then freeze it. They would take it in a coffee grinder and grind it up. Then they would take Dorman, which is something that you take for a cold that's white in color, and then mix that together and they put it in a capsule. It could be snorted, it could be taken, and then they would tell people, they would call it Chiva. They'd tell them it's a natural herb or something. Uh, they didn't tell them it was heroin, so people have no idea they were taking heroin. So really, when you think about it, they, they targeted this area specifically, and then they used this, this type of marketing to be able to sell this as something else and get people addicted to it. The first overdose death occurred in 1995. Around the same time, Plano burglary detectives began to notice an uptick in burglaries committed by heroin addicts, desperate for money. And most concerning, these addicts were seemingly good kids. Billy Meeks, and I was a Plano police detective on the Plano Heroin Task Force, uh, 1997 through 2001. And I went to all, the, all overdoses. An overdose occurred, I went. When you arrive, uh, you find information about them. You can look at them. You can normally tell that they've, they've got some type of uh, drug reaction. They're going to have uh, a foam uh, coming from their mouth. They will have things coming from their nose where they've aspirated. They will have uh, other things, and there will be evidence in the vicinity of the body that would indicate that they were, that they were a drug overdose. In 1997, things started to heat up. Meeks recalls the summer of 1997 so vividly. He can name the exact day and time when he was pulled in to help. June the 18th, 1997, at about uh, 3.20 in the afternoon, I was called to the uh, chief's office and uh, discussed the death of uh, one of the individuals, and, and that was the change of my career. Police Chief Bruce Glasscock asked Meeks to investigate the death of a handsome 20-year-old boy named Milan Molina. Within a few days, Meeks got another phone call, another overdose. I went straight to the overdose scene, started working it right then, determined quickly into it was his first time to ever try it. He didn't know he was trying heroin, he was trying Chiva. Not heroin, Chiva. He didn't know it was heroin. And he had a reaction to it and died. He was at home. The next evening, we had another. But this is the third that I had simultaneously because I had them all on my desk. I responded to that one. It was at the hotel <clears throat> at uh, Plano Parkway. Very sad. 
he was a father. Uh, he took the heroin. Again, I don't think he thought it was heroin. He was taking Chiva or cheese, as they were calling it, and he overdosed on it. He died. Just a few weeks later, Meeks was called to investigate the death of yet another young man, a 19-year-old football player and recent graduate of Plano East, headed to Texas Tech. Rob Hill's father discovered his son. Early in the morning, uh, I happened to be walking down the hallway and I saw his light on. I went into his room and uh, he was lying on his bed face down and uh, he would not respond. And so uh, I called to my wife and uh, we uh, tried to give him artificial respiration. We did not know what was the matter. And so we got the uh, call of 911 and they came in, uh, took him to the hospital. And uh, we did not know what was happening. And the doctor came out and told us that we could not save your son, that your son had passed away and he, and he died of an heroin overdose. And we, a total shock, we, we had no idea that our son had gotten involved with heroin. So how could this happen in Plano, Texas? How did good kids, many of them A students or popular athletes, get involved in heroin? Here's what surprised us. Many didn't know. Many of them had no clue what drug they were taking. That's Bill Baldwin, the assistant U.S. attorney called in to prosecute the case. Called Chiva to them. It was something that they could grind up and, and snort and uh, use at parties, and they would buy it. And they, I, I think had they known it was heroin, they might have had second thoughts about it. The kids were buying the drug from dealers operating out of the Blue House, a home on Avenue I, a stone's throw from the Plano Police Department in downtown Plano, and from an open-air market also not far away off of 18th Street. And this heroin was extraordinarily, dangerously pure. It's usually 5 or 6 percent. Uh, the production in Mexico, uh, those who were producing it, had upgraded their, their production capacity and they brought in chemists and suddenly they were producing 90 to 95 percent pure black tar heroin. And this is what caused the problem. Had it been the low purity that was previously uh, imported, it wouldn't have caused a problem. But the uh, high purity was really what caused death and destruction in the community. It was clear that the pattern of deaths that were occurring and the pattern of overdoses were, that were occurring and occurring in a very you know, small geographic area, that we had, a, we had a serious problem that was developing and that we needed to take an approach that was uh, uh, aggressive and, and upfront. For that aggressive approach, Plano teamed with federal agents to convene the Plano Heroin Task Force. The first meeting took place at Plano's police department in the fall of 1997. 
I will never forget that that when I stepped into that room, I can almost go around the room and tell you where everybody was sitting in the room. I was so excited. We had investigators from DEA, from the Sheriff's Department, from the local law enforcement agencies, from the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, that, that flooded this town and started an undercover and aggressive investigation like this community had never seen before. As the deaths hit the news, parents were terrified. Rumors were rampant. City leaders called a public meeting to warn teens and their parents about the dangers of Chiva. Where we turned the corner was the, uh, the community meeting we had at Plano Center. Close to 2,000 people turned. It, 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 was, it was shocking to us because uh, I remember being on the stage and, and having one of the officers come up and say, you're going to have to delay the meeting because we've got them backed up all the way to Spring Creek trying to get into Plano Center. So we delayed almost a half hour, 45 minutes to, and filled that large room uh, with the, you know probably close to 2,000 people. I mean, we were telling the parents, if you suspect it, search your kids' rooms. Know where your kids are. City leaders were mindful that going public could be harmful to Plano's image, but they felt they had no choice. My name is Aubrey Dale Paul. I go by AD. I'm a sergeant with the Plano Police Department. During the heroin crisis, I was a newly assigned narcotics sergeant, a supervisor over our narcotics unit. In those days, this was a high-risk proposition because, you know, Plano was still developing. We still had, we were still trying to get corporations to move here. The housing market was still booming, so, you know, they, they wanted people to buy homes here. One of the biggest draws to our city is our school districts. We have some of the most, you know, some of the finest schools in the country. And so, you know, to come out and say, my name is Plano, I'm an addict. That's a tough, that's a tough sale. We were a community on the rise. We were a community of all good things and uh, good jobs, uh, great schools, good neighborhoods. Many did not want to do to see that leave. But what trumps all of that is the possibility of a child losing their life. Nobody wants to have a reputation of being a community that has got a serious drug problem. We're going to have to go out front. It's not going to be pretty, and it's not going to be positive. And John said, if it saves lives, we got to do it. It's, that's where we kind of turned the corner in, in, in both from an investigative approach and then from a, a very strong public education effort at it. For the people in Plano, this was a period of intense soul-searching. How had we failed our kids? Did kids have too much pressure, too much money, too little supervision? Rumors ran rampant around town of kids having easy access to drugs in schools. A.D. Paul at that time came to us and said, you know, we keep hearing that there are drugs in the schools and we need to do something about that. That's a, that's a touchy situation, but we felt it was important. Plano PD launched an undercover operation that ultimately extended to three Plano high schools, Plano East, Plano Senior, and Special Programs, to root out distribution in the schools, and it ended with arrests in the schools in the middle of a school day. There was a lot of fear in the community and a lot of talk about drugs being slung in the bathrooms and being available and people being approached at school. We put a person undercover 
uh, for a year, and we only I think we only made one case in the schools. We found that the schools were very good with their programs to keep drugs out of the schools, and they were actually going off campus to people's homes whenever no one was home after school to do the drugs. So uh, it was it was really something different than we expected from all that we heard from the community and the parents. And of course, some of the kids were telling the parents that drugs are all over the schools, but we didn't find that was a fact. Sometimes we got criticized, well, why you went into the schools and you pulled these poor kids out of their classes? We intentionally did that. We wanted to send a clear message that if you do drugs, uh, you're going to get caught and you're going to get arrested. And so we staged the arrest uh, for after school started and we sent squad cars in and detectives and we drug them out of their classroom, handcuffed them and, and walked them out and put them in a squad car. The task force settled on an enforcement strategy that was unprecedented. Not only would they be going to go after the dealers, they were going to make a federal case of it. Here's Bill Baldwin. The amount of heroin that we were seeing come in uh, through these, through the Blue House and, and through these distributors to the kids, and it really wasn't all that uh, large. And when I looked at the guidelines, I realized, well, there's not much of a penalty here. Uh, then I read uh, deeper into the statute, and I discovered that if you can prove that there's a conspiracy, that the conspiracy distributed heroin to these individuals and they died, then there is a minimum mandatory sentence of 20 years to life, which is a pretty powerful tool. The, the charges would really have some teeth in them, and that's why we went forward with the investigation. We made a decision that we were going to treat every overdose as a homicide investigate potential homicide investigation under federal law there's an there was a provision that was in that federal law and and the drug dealers didn't know this is that if you supply drugs to an individual that resulted in a death then that is the same as murder and so that is the provision we went after less than a year after those four deaths on July 23rd 1998, Baldwin, Glasscock, and the head of the Drug Enforcement Administration held a joint press conference. A 36-count federal indictment was handed out. It named 29 people, charging them in, quote, a calculated and cold-blooded conspiracy that supplied the heroin that killed four Plano area young people. The 29 included dealers, as well as 14 young Plano residents who sold the drug to their friends. Once the arrests went down, the word on the street became, don't sell heroin in Plano. First time that some of those people, when we busted them all and they got charged and they suddenly realized they were being charged federally and they were being charged with the, with the potential of a, of a murder. It sent, uh, it sent shockwaves through the drug community because they said, uh-oh. Uh, and literally, as we moved along, we, it got to the point where our detectives couldn't buy drugs in, in this city. But it was clear that they, they got the message that if you go to Plano, uh, your chances of getting busted and your chances of getting a federal hit uh, went up significantly. 
whenever we would call and try to order heroin in Dallas or another city to, and try to buy some that we found a lead that maybe they're selling heroin to kids in, in Plano, we prosecuted so many people and to the degree that they were afraid to come to Plano. We had to tell them, for example, we would say, meet us at the Collin Creek Mall. And they says, I, no way I'm coming to Plano. I'll sell anywhere except Plano. And we'd have to convince them that Collin Creek Mall was actually in Dallas, Dallas County. And then they would come, and of course we would tell them that wasn't accurate when we arrested them. The trial in 1999 was moved to Beaumont, Texas due to the publicity. Ultimately, 28 people went to jail including some of the young people in Plano who'd gotten involved in selling the heroin to their friends. The worst of the Plano heroin crisis had come to a close. As he spoke with us, Greg Russian, now Plano's police chief, flipped through a PowerPoint presentation that details Plano's strategy. He uses that when he's called on by his counterparts in other communities to share how Plano fought heroin. We had a three-prong approach to drugs that we developed here in Plano whenever we, whenever we had this occur. And our three-prong approach was aggressive enforcement, education or demand reduction, and then thirdly, coordinated aggressive prosecution. And prosecution, of course, also uh, talks about asset seizure. You know, whenever you have a drug organization that's operating, if you take one or two players out and they still have their money, they just fill those in with somebody else. So you have to actually take those resources away from that drug enterprise to shut them down, to stop that activity in your community. But uh, we found that worked very well for us. And I know others of, around the country have used either parts or, or that entire uh, approach to be able to address their heroin problems as well. The thing that makes this whole thing work is all the stars aligned. One little star gets out of whack, and it doesn't come together. But this one worked. Each one of us filled our position, and at some point you get lucky and everything falls together. Even with the convictions, those involved say they don't feel happy about this story. I hesitate to even say we solved the problem. We had a, a significant impact on deterring drugs in Plano. But we also know we displaced it because what we saw is other communities started having overdoses. Not to the, the degree that we had, but that's what occurred is they, they went someplace else to, to pander their drugs. Probably hundreds of kids who, who had addictions, whose lives to this day are still being affected. Those families, all, all the dysfunctional parts of, of, of that scene, um, their ability to go on to higher education, military, have, have lives, productive lives and good relationships, all that's affected. It's ironic that uh, we still see some of the people that we see overdosing today, a great many, are still the people that are of a, of a greater age that would have been teenagers back during those times. So it's still that same group. I think once you're exposed to heroin, it's very difficult to kick that habit. It's one of the hardest things, hardest habits you're ever going to be able to have to kick in your life. Many times it's a lifelong struggle. And sometimes your life is longer and sometimes your life is not. You know, we've always had drugs. We started seeing heroin in 1995 in Plano. Heroin's here. It's never went away. Uh, we have a close proximity to Mexico where a lot of those drugs come from. We are always on, on guard and always fighting uh, heroin, and, and we're going to continue to do that in the future. Even now, when you see more heroin to higher levels in the Midwest and the Northeast and other parts of the country, 
where they're feeling they're seeing a lot of deaths and they're feeling the same things that we felt. Um, you know, this is, you just can't let your guard down. You got to keep your guard up and you got to keep protecting against those types of, of drugs coming into our community. Now that we're 20 years out, uh, the real lesson is that we forget. You know, we're very, we learned a lot of lessons uh, 20 years ago and we addressed the issue and people were aware. And 20 years later, we forget. And I think maybe that's just the human condition. What I see is the biggest problem uh, is methamphetamine in this country, and particularly in the state of Texas, and particularly in the Dallas area. There's not much production of methamphetamine in the United States. The reason being is that the uh, Mexican cartels produce 99% pure methamphetamine, and they smuggle it like they were smuggling heroin. Uh, into the U.S. They don't even cut it. They don't care. The price is so low because they're flooding the market. So methamphetamine, like heroin, is very, very destructive. So I see that as the next uh, really bad situation that we're facing in, in our state and and perhaps in the Dallas Plano area. Have we stopped drug use in our community? Is heroin still here? Yes. Um, are people still going to over, are still overdosing on these on these substances? Yes. Today, the Plano Police Department works hard to warn young people against drugs, and to assist parents who suspect their kids might be involved. Here's Police Chief Greg Russian. Uh, we have a number of different programs to help people in our community uh, as their kids go through those teen, tough teenage years. Uh, to make sure that we don't have this happen in the future. Uh, we do free drug testing. Well, we don't prosecute, we just will test something for you and tell you the results so you can get help. Every community uh, ultimately faces a challenge and faces a crisis, and the difference is how that community addresses it and how they handle it. I, you know, if, if, if I could uh, change history, I would wish that we never had a heroin crisis in Plano. And I would wish that none of those kids ever died and those parents had to go through that agony. Plano was tested by that. And in this case, Plano rose to the challenge and Plano ensured that something was done to stop it. The message and, and the, the overall sense of our community is that we'll face these issues head on. I think that model can be one for our country. Plano's a story for the rest of the country. And with that, we've come to the end of our tale of the Plano heroin shutdown, 20 years revisited. We want to thank the City of Plano and the U.S. Attorney's Office for their cooperation and the research they've provided for us to be able to produce this episode. Stay with us now for our wrap-up, where we give you a peek behind the scenes with myself, producer Mary Jacobs, and a special guest. After all... What's the coolest little on-air joint in Plano without sharing a little back corner booth discussion among friends? My name is Shannon White. I'm a recovering alcoholic and I own a substance abuse outpatient treatment center in Collin County called Grace to Change. My name is Kim Hughes. I am a graduate of Plano East 1997 and was directly touched by the heroin epidemic. As you were listening to this podcast, I saw a lot of emotion on your faces, a lot of head nodding, a lot of head shaking. What's going on in your mind as you listen to this? I was listening to him say, hi, I'm Plano and I'm an addict. 
And I was thinking how great it would be if we could introduce and say, hi, I'm Plano and we help people recover. I was just remembering back to my high school years, how this had become such a outcry in the city. It, it was affecting families of all ages. It was affecting all races. It was affecting all cultures. Would you be comfortable sharing how you personally have some family members affected by this? My daughter's dad, uh, 20 years ago, during the heroin epidemic, started using Chiva. He first snorted it and then became an intravenous drug user. He tried multiple times to go to rehab and kick this habit, and it just did not happen. Unfortunately, his life has been affected. He's 40 years old now and still has an addiction to heroin. My 19-year-old daughter is also a heroin addict. She's been battling since she was 11, heroin and meth. It just shows how much it's still prevalent in the community. If your boyfriend back in the day was using, and now your daughter is, what's kept you from it? I watched this stuff in my younger years, and I watched my daughter's father struggle so bad that it just turned me a completely against that type of lifestyle. Did you did you get anything new or was there even anything in here that you'd forgotten about that just came back up? Is it hard to um, listen to? This was not hard to listen to. It brings back a lot of memories, some sad memories, funeral memories, you know, lost friends, things like that. But it actually kind of lights the fire back underneath me. I listen to that and think, hey, that was 20 years ago. And my household is going through the same identical thing. People have let the episode that happened in Plano kind of just go to the wayside. How aware do you think people are today, either of you, how aware are people today of this situation that happened 20 years ago? I do not think most people know about it. We're coming up on our 20th high school reunion. It's being organized right now for 97. So we have a lot of communication going on at this point. And it's not something that's discussed. Even the people that were lost during those years for multiple reasons, and some of them heroin and some of them due to the backlash of the heroin, people feeling guilty, suicides that resulted from such a young population dying. It's not it's not addressed in a way. I think people would like to forget it. You know, we'd like this to go away and not think about it. But is there any value in revisiting this story absolutely (laughs) right now opioid addiction is the single biggest problem we have in the united states surgeon general just came out and said that the disease of addiction is killing more people than all of the cancers combined we are now giving people insane amounts of pain medication uh, opioid pain medication hydrocodone oxycontin percocet which is absolutely a derivative of heroin. People get these medications, and then when they can't get them anymore from the doctor, heroin is the logical choice they go to because it affects the brain exactly the same way. I've heard that's the reason that there's a new outbreak. It's doctor, I'm going to say this wrong, but it's like doctor-assisted heroin addiction. Mm -hmm. Dr. Wade in Collin County that was just recently arrested, he had a medical practice in Collin County, and he is still in the Collin County Jail for prescribe, over-prescribing pain medication to people, and three or four of those people have died. 
prior to his arrest, Kroger and CVS were not filling any prescription that came from Dr. Wade. That's how aware they were of his overprescribing. If we were to approach this as a disease rather than a criminal prosecution situation, how would we do things differently? Criminals who are caught with drugs, we actually have drug courts, which focus on treatment and accountability and probation. So they're required to fulfill obligations legally, but the focus isn't on incarceration. It's on treatment. Okay, what's the situation in, in Plano right now in terms of illegal drugs? What are the most, what do you see as the biggest problems? Prescription pain medications. Kids are doing what's called Skittle parties, where they go in the parents' medicine cabinets and dump all the pills together, whatever they can find, and you scoop in and take a handful, and you have no idea what the combination is. And you can become addicted to a narcotic pain medication in as little as five days. With that kind of potency in these pain medications, it's understandable why when you get a 10-day prescription for pain medication, you either want to refill very quickly or you're quickly looking to find something else because the withdrawal is so painful, just like it was with heroin. Now, marijuana in the 60s was about two t- times potent. Now it's about 60 times as potent. But the ne- there's a new race now. Dealers are competing. And so they lace their marijuana either with heroin or cocaine or methamphetamine. So you will like it more. And so you will buy drugs from them as opposed to their competition. That's what's so scary. So people, people that come in and they say, oh, my kid's just smoking marijuana, marijuana or heroin. You don't really know. Marijuana or cocaine, marijuana or methamphetamine or hydrocodone or Xanax. Kim, what would you add to this story? As people listen to this, in order to really understand what happened 20 years ago and what we need to do to to be vigilant now, what would you add? Education is key here. If you suspect that your child is using, if you suspect your child's friend is using, you have got to address it and not enable it and not turn a blind eye to it and not hope that, oh, it was just this one time. I was highly educated and I still allowed things to happen for years because we were going to fix it in our home and we didn't need to involve everybody and I didn't need help. We could take her to rehab and I didn't, we didn't need any help from others. And the day I gave that power up and let people start to help, life started to change. Her life started to change. My life started to change. It was a rocky road, you know, jail involved lots and drug courts and, you know, me having to quit a job to be able to get her everywhere she needed to go and downscale life. But you do what you have to do. And it's all based on education, educating the public, the parents, the kids, everyone, everyone. What would you add to this, Shannon, to what you've heard today? Being a part of the drug community, working with the court system and dealing with addicts on a daily basis, one of the things that frightens me the most is the shame attached to this disease. Shame is what keeps people from talking to their friends about it, going, reaching out to people and asking for help. There was a lot of soul searching, I remember, in Plano, and people were thinking we were, you know... The parents are working too hard. They're not supervising their kids enough. We don't know each other. It's a transit community. Mm-hmm. Were those things true as a, as a teen and what you saw? Were those true or was it something else going on? Plano was very affluent at that time. We didn't have Frisco and Prosper and all the big towns competing. Everybody that had money was pretty much in Plano. It was very transit. 
there was a lot of double working households that were making a lot of money. Kids had a lot of money. The parking lots at the school were full of $50,000 cars, you know, that kids were getting for their 16th birthday. That's not typical average America. So there was a lot of money being used. I think that's was some of the shame for Plano. I also think that everybody being so social, Plano is a very social town, um, lots of party hosting, lots of, you know, involvement, nothing bad, just a lot of stuff going on that kids do have a lot of free time. It's not anything bad against the parents. The, everybody's just very involved. With that being said, I moved from Plano when my kids were in first and third grade to a small country town that has a worst drug problem than Plano could have ever imagined having. So that goes to show you that it doesn't matter if it's transit. It doesn't matter if it has the highest percentage of wealth or one of the lowest percentages of wealth, because now the town I live in has one of the highest poverty levels and drugs are running just as rampant in that town as they do in Plano, Texas, that is one of the wealthiest cities in America. Interesting. Good point. Shannon, you, you run a facility that's a little different than some of the other drug or addiction recovery places. We've made the decision that the legal system is usually the place where this disease is triaged. With the legal system, we, we can cast a broader net because they're going to catch more people. Um, there used to be a study that said people would say, oh, you can't get sober unless you want to. You have to be a willing participant. The truth is the studies say forced treatment is as effective as volunteer treatment. And so with the legal system, we can add the accountability piece of drug testing to meet the requirements of the law. And we don't have to do the testing. So I go to court and I testify for people. I meet with attorneys. I teach a class in the jail. Substance abuse treatment is a lucrative business if you choose to get in it for that. We are the exact opposite. We've just recently become a nonprofit. So we can actually use the funding stream that Collin County is going to mandate um, North Star is going away and Life Path is going to be in charge of all behavioral health for Collin County. So we are a provider under that, which means anyone that gets free and reduced lunch, anyone that is indigent, any child that is on Medicaid can come and get treatment for their substance abuse problem for free. No out-of-pocket costs to the family. So juveniles and adults starting January 1st can come and get treatment. And it's money that the county's earmarked for this specific purpose because they are in our community. Uh, you walk in, uh, especially our juveniles, you have five moms. The people that work for me that are the counselors, we're all in recovery, so we get it firsthand. We didn't learn it from a book. We learned it from the School of Hard Knocks. We check your Facebook. We call your mom. We rat you out in group if you've relapsed. We don't report you to probation because that's not our job, but we will sit with you and allow you to call probation and let them know that you've relapsed or done something because if we allow them to get away with it and manipulate the system and we don't tell we're perpetuating the secret do you take people that other people won't take oh yes i my favorite is the hardest of the hard Uh, we've got people with five dwis we've got people with multiple heroin charges we helped a woman from the jail who was homeless and had 19 felony convictions for theft because she was a crack cocaine user and lived under a bridge and had been to jail or prison for every arrest. And finally, a judge in Collin County allowed her 
probation. And she's been a productive member of society for three years now. We have one that Collin County has spent over $120,000 incarcerating. And she's 23 years old now. But she's out and a productive citizen now because, again, a judge gave her the ability to do probation, which is not easy. And she's working her butt off, but she's better. <laughs> she's better because of it. Where do we find Grace to Change? Uh, Grace to Change is located in McKinney. We're at White Avenue and 75, about a mile from the courthouse. You can reach us at 972 972- Five four two two nine zero zero, or visit our website at www.gracetochange.com. Thanks, Shannon. You're welcome. Thanks, Kim. You're welcome. This is Cole Boffin from the Plano Podcast. If you want to find out more information, go to planopodcast.com and click on episode resources. We've reached the end of another edition of Plano Podcast: Tales of Curiosity and Character. We hope you've enjoyed today's topics and discussion. Remember to follow us on Twitter at at Plano Podcast and send us your feedback, ideas, and comments. Thanks for listening and subscribing. We'll be waiting for you at our back corner booth. Until next time.